Yeah, um, good afternoon everybody. Um, thank you very much, Wing, for inviting me. And uh, as Wing has already pointed out, I don't mind being interrupted. Being an economist, I know the second you show your, your title, they're all like, ha, ah, let me grill you right now. <laughs> so um, please go ahead and just shoot if you have a question. Um, also, I should thank Wing because he gave me a decent excuse for having eight hours of sleep and not reading Thomas the Tank Engine in the middle of the night because I have a teething toddler at home, so I'm as fresh as I haven't been in a long, long time. <laughs> so thank you very much, Wing. Um, so I'm going to be talking about Perifax mobility and innovation, um, evidence from the superstars of modern art. So I already have to disappoint you right in the beginning, I know that's not a good strategy, that the innovation part of it all is not fully developed yet. So this is a, a new working paper of mine. Um, so it's a very early stage and I'm very happy for any comments you have um, on it at this stage. Uh, so innovation, I'll say a little bit about it, but it's not fully fleshed yet. Um, Alright, so why do we care? The first question really of all papers. So peer facts are important in many spheres. So I guess that's the same for sociology, economics and all of that. So there are many, many different papers who look at um, peers in schools. So does it matter who sits in your class with you? Uh, peers in universities and colleges. Does it matter who your colleagues are, how good they are, where they publish, where they have studied and so on? Um, and also, in general, there's a broader literature that looks at peers and uh, kind of peer groups and, um, yeah, almost classes of people, if you will, um, in cities and what they do there and how that changes um, the production sphere in a city and the sort of cultural atmosphere in a city. So it seems that peer effects and how, you know, the, um, the mechanisms behind are pretty important. Um, and second of all, there's an important role for choosing your work location. I mean, you know, you don't want to be in Oxford just because of the beauty of it all, but you really care about, you know, the beauty of your colleagues. How good are they? What can they contribute to your work? You know, where do you have spillovers? Where can you benefit from them? And also vice versa, I guess, many people sort of hope to benefit from you being there, being in their vicinity. So this is the idea. And then Richard Florida has written a pretty controversial book a couple of years back about creative cities. Um, but, you know, you could have a whole debate about whether or not that's true and if it's, you know, if it's all sound and solid, what he's presenting there. But it is certainly true that there is a strong tendency for, you know, the creative classes, what he calls the creative classes, to agglomerate in cities. Um, and they certainly want, you know, a hip kind of cultural atmosphere and I think this is sort of where arts and artists come in. So he does a little case study where he claims that, you know, business people and bankers, they not only care for a good business environment, I mean, that's obvious, that's, that's what, what is um, their core interest, but they also care for a lively social and cultural life, and this is more likely to be provided in big cities. So... Florida's claim there's a big policy relevance from that point of view. So if you have a good cultural atmosphere in your city, you have opera houses, theatres and so on, you will have creative people. Um, so I guess the same could be said for artists, but given that this is a historic study, I do, wouldn't want to go as far as to try to make a policy sort of recommendation based on modern artists active 100 years ago. But there certainly is a sort of link, say, you have a lot of artists and um, screenwriters and actors and all of that, and that is kind of good for your creative environment. 
Now, when we look at modern artists, so this is a superstar sample of modern artists. So everybody born between 1820 and 1945, so the, the real big shots of modern arts. Um, we kind of know intuitively, and we can quantify that as well, that Paris and New York are the great magnet cities of the arts. Um, there's really no debate about it. In my sample, it's about 50% of artists that have worked in Paris or New York at any point in their careers. So it really is a huge, massive um, agglomerate magnet, whatever you want to call it, these two cities for artists. Um, now, there are two stories, essentially. One would be beauty and the vibe of those cities. So certainly it is true that if you're a young artist, you want to be in Paris or New York because there's loads of gallerists, art dealers, people who can represent you, who can get you a big solo show in those cities. Um, so this is sort of the whole kind of demand side for art or consumption side, if you will. So that is the one strand of literature that works on the arts and cities. And then the other kind of argument would be why the cities because you have a lot of peers there it's just very likely that you have another star or another innovator in your vicinity if you go to Paris or New York so as you can already see that story is one of the big complications econometrically because that essentially means that we have some sort of selection issue a sorting of artists so I'm going to try uh, to convince you of a little um, of a solution that I have up, but uh, we'll see how that goes. So, um, I want to measure human capital spillovers in clusters for modern artists. That is my story. So, I want to put a, a number, or uh, yeah, I want to put a number on how significant are peer effects for production of modern arts. That is the essence of this paper. So, it kind of links in pretty nicely with an increasing strand of literature on peer effects in production or in creative production, if you will. Um, and there is mixed evidence, I guess. And that has to do a lot with the fact that, I mean, creative production, I mean, all of us, we'd be creative because we're in a, in a university, so they'd consider us creative. Um, but so are life scientists and, and the doctors and so on. So um, the fact that there's mixed evidence mostly comes from the fact that they say nowadays it doesn't really matter where you are. It matters that you're close to your colleague in terms of idea space. So you want to be similar, working on a similar topic with your colleague. It doesn't necessarily matter if he's in Oxford or in London or Hamburg or wherever. Um, so this is an ongoing discussion whether the internet essentially makes physical closeness, proximity um, unnecessary. Again, though, I should say, I mean, given that this is a historic sample, for my case, it doesn't really make that much of a difference, given that a lot of this happens, you know, around 19th, 20th century. This is not really going to be a big issue. Communication has to happen in the, on the spot, you know, where your colleague is. Um, there's some evidence, anecdotal evidence of letters, which would be, I guess, the predecessor to the Internet. But... Um, <coughs> You know, I, I don't think that takes away much of, of the appeal of the fact that you have to be in a city to efficiently work with your colleagues. Now, um, I have an historic high-frequency data set um, on the value of modern art products. So what I do is I go out and I collect auction results of modern art auctions in the last 20 or 25 years, and this is how I measure the quality of artworks being produced in Paris and New York. Um, so the research design essentially is a big panel of superstar artists 
uh, and I'll tell you a little bit of how I select those. So this is what I uh, was writing about in the Journal of Historical Methods. So this is all how do you select superstars, who's important, uh, why do we care, that story. So I'll say a little bit about that. Then the auction results, um, that is pretty straightforward and it's very closely linked to you know, studies of real estate markets and so on. So this is also where I'm borrowing a lot of the econometric methods. And then lastly, I'm going to look at the biographies of those artists and extract where have they lived in each point of time through their careers. So merging these three spheres essentially gives me a big, nice panel that I can use to estimate these effects. Now, in the first setting, I guess you could call it a straight OLS sort of setup. All I'm asking is if artists working in Paris and New York benefit from the quality of their peers. So I literally just throw in a quality measure for the quality of the peers minus the one person I'm looking at into the regression and see does that have an effect, yes or no. Now, I mean, a lot can be said about is that an ideal way to measure the effects, and we know there might be some bias um, in those estimates. Um, so that's why I propose a natural experiment, and that will be the Second World War. I know now, being a German, it's no wonder I'm bringing up the war. <laughs> what can I say? I know, I know though that you're not allowed to mention the war, though, in my presence, but <laughs> um, the Second World War, because we know, I mean, as soon as the Nazis um, entered the stage in Germany, they were, I mean, already in 1933, they were posing a big intellectual threat to all sort of intellectual spheres. Um, and they were deeming people's work, people's books, people's painting degenerate in 1933 already, and they were burning books and paintings and all that. So that was already pretty prominent. It was a big scare to artistic produ production. And a couple of years later, we know that you know, the Nazis started invading Poland and France, Luxembourg, Belgium, and so on. So there was also a physical threat. So I want to use that effect, the exodus, if you want, of artists from Paris um, as a natural shock to the supply of peers in Paris. Um, and a counter story to that would be, um, maybe I shouldn't really take away the punchline, but in any case, the, the, the counter story of that, or the, the flip side of the coin, I guess, is to say, would be that a lot of these people go to New York because that's a safe haven. It's far enough, you know, no political trouble. It uh, has a decent productive base for modern arts. Uh, it's kind of blossoming, you know, with pop art and, uh, oh, pop art is later, sorry, abstract expressionism and all of that. So these new movements are coming up. So why not just go there and try your luck there? So I want to see, does that ha also have an effect on New York's production and the effect of peers? <laughs> now... Again, so this is sort of the timeline of what happened um, during the Second World War. So we use it as an external shock to the peer composition in Paris. So 33, this is where the whole, you know, your work is degenerate uh, sort of movement happened in, by the Nazis or was originated by the Nazis. So it is true that this only happened to Germany at first, although works by Picasso say as soon as they had invaded France, works by Picasso were also deemed degenerate. And... You know, he couldn't really display his work anymore, but he's still a stayer because he always stayed in, in Paris. Um, so, you know, I guess you could kind of argue that already at this stage, artists could have felt, oh dear, this might be a threat eventually. It might become a big threat to our work and, you know, our livelihood, really. And in 39, you know, 1st of September, that was the when the war actually started to happen. So the first attack on Poland, two days later, UK and France declare war on Germany. Um, 
you know, history books tell me it was kind of half-hearted in the beginning because they didn't really know what to do with the whole situation. There was no actual warfare yet. But then a couple of months later, uh, the Nazis actually started to invade France, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And then in 14th, June 1940, um, Paris was occupied. So I guess I should say that in Paris itself, actual warfare was fairly limited because they had made an agreement that they want to save you know, the beauty of Paris and all the historic buildings and all of that. So there were bombings and so on, but it was limited. It wasn't to an extent, say, that you observe in, in Germany, in Frankfurt or Berlin or what have you. Um, which is pretty good because it pays off and Paris is still beautiful if we go there today and when you go to Germany you have all these ugly 60s buildings so yeah uh, but that is important for the identification technique now this is what it is in numbers so we have a negative supply shock for Paris 14 I call them war induced leavers so people that leave decide to leave during 39 and 45 so the actual time of the second world war and this is 31% of my sample, so it's quite a huge drain on the peers' group, if you will. Um, and then five of those 14 artists uh, chose to go to New York to continue their careers. So I guess it's fair to say that this translates into a positive supply shock for New York. Um, so... Oh, this is six. I'm sorry, this should be six. So six of those 14 artists went to New York. I'm terribly sorry. Um, so six war-induced newcomers to the New York art scene in that same period. So this is what I want to set up sort of, of my natural experiment. Now, um, you guys are terribly shy. No questions so far. No nasty comments. Ah, sociologists. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, the key findings, uh, Hamamesh has once said, okay, don't, you know, have this, you know, swing the sausage in front of the dog and not give it to him. Tell the people what you find immediately so they can uh, disagree with you the second, you know, you open your presentation. So this is what I'm going to find. We do have positive effects um, for peers or off-peers, peer quality in those two clusters. And it all comes through the quality channel. So it doesn't matter so much how many peers you have around you but really how good they are. And I guess that's very intuitive, and that is consistent with what we find in the, lecture, uh, in, in the literature. Um, now, the benefit mostly coincides with periods of major innovation. So we have big effects in Paris sort of at the beginning of the 20th century, and very big effects in New York after you know, the 1940s, 1950s. So this is consistent with um, you know, the arrival of Impressionism and Cubism, so the first moves towards abstraction, if you will, in modern art in Paris. And then in New York, um, yeah, abstract expressionism, really, Pollock and, and all these uh, painters. So this is, this is where it's happening. Um, now, the clean estimate of peer effects would really be using that exogenous experiment. And if we do that, we, sh we see that there is a significant effect on the quality of artists if you have that peer brain drain in Paris. But nevertheless, this doesn't show up in a positive effect, positive significant effect for New York. And I have some ideas of why this could be, so I'll keep that maybe for the end. Now, the background. So this is Bateau Lavoie. This is where Picasso has worked with Black together when he first arrived in Paris. So this is where everything has been happening sort of in the artistic quarters in Paris. And as you can see at the time, in 1904, that is where, you know, a couple of years later, Cubism, one of the big 
moves towards abstraction will take place. So this is, this is where innovation is happening in the arts. And this, this is where things get nasty. This is 41. This is actually German soldiers who have um, stolen French tanks and they parade them in the middle of the city center. So this is sort of where you know, we definitely expect that most of the peers will have left if they felt endangered by the presence of the Nazis at all. And then this book, I think, is rather interesting because this is looking at um, performance arts. And Ellen Riding is claiming that cultural life in Nazi-occupied Paris, at least with performing arts, sort of kept going in a quite lively way. And they actually uh, felt that the Nazis would be a pretty good source of, of you know, steady demand, if you will, for their production. So that is a pretty kind of controversial idea. Um, but it seems, at least in the performing arts, there wasn't much of a hindrance. Nevertheless, though, we do have an exodus there as well of, of artists, particularly of Jewish descent and people who were oppon opponents, uh, political opponents. So that all happens, but still the show goes on according to Ellen Riding. This is New York. This is the bunch of people who made ex abstract expressionism happen. Um, this is Jackson Pollock here. Um, so Wheeler, in his book, he says that with the arrival of the luminaries of high modernism, like Dali and Ernst, uh, Breton, and so on, uh, the American city became, for the first time in its 300-year history, the world capital of international art. So it's really a shift of gravity, if you will, away from Paris to New York. And lucky for me, it coincides with the timing of the Second World War. Oh, so I'm losing the microphone here. <laughs> um, all right. So, artists in exile. This is again for the performing arts. Loads of people have written on the performing arts. Hardly anything on, on modern painters. Uh, but again, this is just to you know, make you aware of the fact that many artists have chosen to go on exile in New York. Um, yeah. All right, now what does the literature have to say on this? So as they at all, they look at life scientists, and the way they do it, they have a neat natural experiment as well, where they say, what happens to my output if my co-author dies suddenly? And that is pretty neat, I think, because it's clearly exogenous. Um, they exclude, you know, kind of illnesses that lead to death eventually, so no foresight. And they do find um, spillover effects. And in this paper as well, they do discuss that in later stages, so towards the late 90s, localized peer effects do not matter so much anymore. So they say it's the proximity and idea space to your colleagues. Um, now, Kim et al., they do the same using elite university affiliation for economists and finance researchers, and they also find positive spillover effects. Now, Waldinger... This is sort of the paper where I got the idea of using the Second World War as an experiment. He uses the expulsion of Jewish physicists and mathematicians in German university departments um, as a natural experiment for peer effects in those sciences. And he doesn't find any evidence for peer effects at all. Um, so that's rather striking, and he does a lot of robustness tests around that, so it seems to be pretty solid finding, but this is one of the few papers that doesn't find any significant effect of peer quality. Um, now, Gellison and Weinberg, they are mostly, well, they're not really concerned with peer effects, but they're concerned with Paris and New York and the importance of those cities for the arts. Um, 
and they came up with using a hedonic framework um, to estimate prices, art prices yielded at auctions. So this is where I use my, my concept. Um, I'll show you in a second how that works. And I've done an earlier, pa uh, earlier paper on this where I show that paintings are uh, more valuable if they're being produced, have been produced in Paris and New York, respectively. Uh, and I did a little bit, because I kind of had a hunch that peer effect is probably what is driving this effect. So I started to do a little bit on that work um, back then, but it's by no means as, as developed as this one here. All right, very good. Does anybody have a question or a comment at this stage? Yes? So, between 88 and 2007. So this is modern day auctions at Sotheby's Christie's and so on, so the big auction houses. Yeah. Well, so the whole idea is that we estimate a hedonic model. So people value the different features that we have in a painting, and you can actually put a coefficient on each of those um, characteristics. Say the size. Is it an oil painting? Is it an abstract painting? So this is the whole idea, uh, and it comes from real estate economics. So it says, okay, an extra room is worth that much. An extra square inch of painting is worth that much. So this is sort of the allegory, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and when you were talking about, I think this is your I think sociologists take a different uh, view of how the world is evaluated. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, when you say peer, peers, I mean, how, how do you define them? I mean, uh, are they like people that are affiliated uh, with the same gallery, or same, working on the same style, or same medium? Um, as of now, peers would be any superstar that is in your vicinity, so that is in Paris the same time you are. Because those are the peer, you know, the peers that are available to you, potentially. Yeah, that's how I estimate this. But I have different uh, quality indicators as well. So I don't only use price. I have another one which I'll explain to you in a second what it is, as a sort of you know robustness check. Does that work if we replace it? But the, ni the neat thing about prices is that prices vary over time. So you have a sort of time varying quality indicator for those artists, sort of similar to publications if you look at researchers. Um, and the disadvantage of using other, uh, other quality indicators is mostly that they're not time varying or at least not at, at a small kind of um, unit such as the yearly uh, variation. So that's, that's one of the main reasons. All right. Okay, perfect. So, a little bit about the data. So this is, I have 273 superstars of modern art, um, and they're all born between 1800 and 1945. So they're a little bit still of classic arts, you know, in there, and then we venture on to modern, modern art, Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Nabi, Fauve, Cubism, what have you. So all these new streams are coming in, and they're being produced by that sample of artists. Now, the selection criterion, how do I deem a superstar, uh, is column inches in Oxford Dictionary of Art. So um, 
the University of Oxford was kind enough to produce that dictionary. It's very famous and it's used everywhere, really. Um, and in that Bible, you can find out exactly or count exactly how much space is attributed to each person. Uh, so I literally went ahead and counted all the columns and all the inches dedicated to each person. Uh, and that gives you a rank of superstars, if you will. Uh, although the ranking in that case doesn't really matter, um, but it gives you a decent sample of artists. Now, the problem with that be is that we might oversample British or English-speaking artists by using the Oxford Dictionary of the Art. Still, it's the Bible, but it might be biased. <laughs> so I use uh, the Reclam Dictionary of Art, which is the German Bible on the arts, to kick out all the artists that have not been me mentioned there but are mentioned in the Oxford Dictionary of Art. Um, now, the Grove Dictionary of Art is somewhat more detailed uh, on the biographies of artists. So that's why I'm switching to that one there, although it has been acquired by the Oxford Dictionary of Art, so technically they belong together now. Um, and there you, from that I extract the work location of an artist in each year of their careers. So then I match the locations to the people. When was the Oxford Dictionary published? Um, well, it's ongoingly... Um, Are you sure that, for example, something in 1950 would have come up with exactly the same rates? Um, probably not. Probably not. So this is from 2007, right. the edition. So, I mean, it's con constantly being added and, you know, renewed. So, so. it starts from our point of view, not from the point of view of the time. Yeah, yeah, it's from our point of view. So this is all kind of backward-looking, if you will, yeah. So this is why column inches is a fair measure, I guess, which is kind of assesses overall quality over the entire course of an artist's career, if you will, because most of these people are dead. And how many artists were mentioned in the Oxford Dictionary? Um, close to 350. 350. Yeah, so not all of them drop out because they're not mentioned in the uh, they're not mentioned in the German dictionary, but a lot of them drop out because they don't have enough items in the market. Because obviously we have superstars of the modern art, but the works are just not traded. So I cannot really say anything about the quality. Yeah. Um, what's the variation in color inches um, between superstars and between all artists? Yeah, it's between uh, 0.2, so 2 inches, and 3 whole columns. And 3 columns will be Picasso, and then the next one is, I think, 2.8, Van Gogh, uh, and 0 0.2 is... Oh, did I do that? No. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, 0 0.2 is sort of, you know, the, the cutoff point to be in that sample at all. Yeah, so, but there's a decent range of different uh, quality artists. I think 30 are above two, column, uh, two whole columns, so that's sort of the, the spread. Now, paintings values. I have close to uh, 35,000 auction results. Uh, so as you can see, they're all been auctioned off between 88 and 2007. They're all hammer prices, so not taking into account the transaction costs, which might vary significantly across places then they are inflation-adjusted. So they are all obtained from artvalue.com, uh, and every artist has to have at least 10 auction items to give a decent representation of what, how he does in the market, uh, which is unfortunately why we lose a couple of artists. And then we have control variables for, is it on a canvas, yes or no, how large is the painting in square meters, and the year of sale, so that could potentially drive some of the prices or the variation in prices. Um, now, summary statistics in Paris. So this is the number of artists in Paris, and as you can see, we have a constant increase up to, well, pretty much the onset of the Second World War, 
and then we have a sharp decline in the number of artists in Paris. And this is the column inch measure in Paris. So you kind of see we have a peak of about uh, 0.7, um, just around the turn of the century, and then kind of goes downhill from there. Now, if we look at prices, um, we also see that sort of, you know, the end of the 19th century, that's sort of a really strong period, also the beginning of the 20th century, but definitely was towards the timing here, kind of after the Second World War, definitely we have a sharp decrease. So in the 50s and 60s, Paris is not really the capital of modern arts anymore. It really has all gone to New York, so we have a bit of a gravity shift there, if you will. Uh, and we see the same in, in average prices. And, um, sorry, yeah. prices are not going down because the work is essentially getting more easy. Um, is the effect you're observing that? I mean, will you observe the same in New York, the same pattern, as it becomes more recent? As it becomes more recent. Uh, yeah, so for New York, we'd, hmm. on, we'd observe exactly the opposite. So a mirror image, sort of, if you will. Um, and that has to do with the fact that loads of artistic innovations, I mean, we have some early Amer Americans, and they're appreciated mostly because they're the classics. They are the only early Americans that we have. Um, so, you know, that is there, certainly. But the main thing in New York really happens after, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, with the arrival, you know, of abstract expressionism, pos uh, pop art and all of that. And we see that as well in the quality indicators. Um, to show you the prices. So you can kind of see, I mean, early Americans sort of all over the place, but the peak in prices is really sort of here in the 60s. Now, cluster premiums over time, Paris and New York, role of peer quality. So this is the OLS, and I'm going to look at the entire sample, um, the entire universe of artists, if you will. So this is a specification. I use the lock of price. And then a quartic um, polynomial in H. That microphone is messing with me. There we are. Um, now, uh, this is kind of standard in the literature, so just for comparability, I also use a quartic polynomial, in case you're wondering. Then we have the hedonic um, indicators, every, everything we know about the painting. When has that painting been sold? Artists fix the facts. Um, and then the last thing here is really... Um, the one that we care about. So we have, where is this painting being produced? What is the quality of peers? And when was that painting produced? Um, now, this is the first one. So we just have a plain dummy for was that painting made in Paris or New York? Uh, and you can see there's a positive impact for those um, cities. So it seems to be a bit of a location premium, if you will, for paintings produced there. Um, and, you know, note that we have the age polynomial and the artist fixie facts. So I kind of drag on all these variables. So they're in all the tables. I just don't report them explicitly in case you're wondering. Now, this is um, the whole thing, uh, same thing again, same exercise. But we're looking at the different periods. What proportion <laughs> of paintings were not from Paris or New York? Uh, about half of the sample, yeah. So that sort of varies with the time period we're looking at, yeah. Um, yeah, so you can see sort of what kind of, you know, more evidence of what we already saw in the diagram. So we see that the period around the turn of the century is pretty important in Paris. And surprisingly enough, that period after the Second World War is also pretty, you know, it's significant and it has a pretty high uh, coefficient. So 
one might really wonder what that comes from. I, I mean, I know Art Informel has been the biggest competitor in Europe to abstract expressionism, but I'm still somewhat surprised that it matters that much. And for New York, um, we also have these early Americans. Um, that's definitely a strong effect. And we have two very uh, significant, well, estimate uh, coefficients here just past the Second World War. So this is where the innovations are happening. Now, if we look at peer quality in Paris and New York, you can see the different uh, ways I measure quality. So one is column inches. So bear in mind that this is not time varying. So this is kind of an ex post uh, assessment of how good someone is. And then the average price and the median price. So we can see that in all, these all these measures are significant. And it seems that, well, peers do matter. So the quality of your peers in Paris and New York does matter for your own, or the value of your own uh, oeuvre, if you will. And the fact seems to be much stronger in New York, though, than in Paris, which is... Um, Maybe somewhat surprising, as we know that Paris has had a lot of different art movements or originating there. Um, but yeah, so be it. You're not measuring peer quantity, are you? Um, not in this paper. I've done it before, and it has well, a significant but small, very small effect. So it all comes through the quality channel, and that seems to be the consensus sort of in the literature that quality is all that matters. Yeah. All right. Now, so this is, sorry, this is a pretty long table, but this is, again, the peer quality taken apart for the different periods. So I may not spend too long about it, but it's kind of consistent with the pattern we saw earlier, and, you know, the different measures seem to be pretty consistent um, across the board. And we, again, see that we have very strong effects in New York for the quality of peers just after the Second World War. Um, during the Second World War, only if we take those two measures into account... And Paris, again, has a surprisingly strong effect after the Second World War and, you know, what we kind of expect just around the turn of the century. So since the price effect, if you measure PA effect by price, is stronger than you, if you measure them by how many column inches your peer has, <coughs> right? You mean stronger in terms of significance? Yeah, significant yeah. parameters. Yeah. So it would suggest to me that maybe it is not because... I'm living in Paris and there are many good artists in Paris which make me paint better paintings. Mm -hmm. And maybe buyers are buying by period and mm -hmm. say, oh, 1920s Paris is, is a good period or 1940s in New York is a good period. It's mm -hmm. like people buying wine, you know, sort of name a vintage and, you know. So the question then is, is it really through the production of artists benefiting from good artists around, mm -hmm. or which is really about the productivity thing, or is it about, um, you know, sort of buyers um, looking for, you know, a particular hint about what, what are good values? Yeah. So I guess those are sort of, um, they kind of come in the same vein, I guess. Because if you know something uh, from a certain period is... Um, you know, is, is a, a painting coming from a certain period is a signal of it being um, high quality. That, that probably has to do with the fact that we have one sort of leader, or maybe a couple of leaders, and a whole bunch of peers around them who sort of maybe hop on the train or they do the same type of thing, or maybe they don't, but 
I think it's probably kind of both working towards the same effect. So you have those people working on the same things. They might or might not benefit from each other. Um, and that sort of feeds into that signal that something from a certain area is, is high quality art. So That's the question is, are they high quality of art or are they fed assumption? Yeah, higher price art. Yeah, so I mean, the main assumption is that the price is a fair measure of the quality. But maybe if I'm a, let's say I'm a rich person, I'm rather ignorant, but I know that, oh, this is a good period. You know, Picasso was painting it, this tells me this period, so maybe I'll buy you know, something, maybe I can't afford a Picasso, but I'll. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's not necessary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so all of that. Yeah. yeah, so all of that. Exactly, yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, that, that's a good point. So all of that, the only consolation I can offer you is that this should be picked up in the artist fixed effects and the year of sale effects because we do have strong trends where the market goes for just Warhol stay or, you know, just, um, yeah. So there are kind of ads and trends in the market. So that should be picked up by the uh, year of sale dummy, sorry, which is it's just here. You can't really see it. And also in the artist's fixed effects. Obviously, someone like Picasso has a very strong fixed effect, very high coefficient. So I'm hoping that this would be picked up, those trends. But I agree, it's not exactly perfect. But given the fact that the the timing of when those paintings are actually traded and the timing that they were being produced, it should be that the price is a decent reflection of the quality because the market had a lot of time to review the different aspects. Will be my story. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, that was my point earlier. The difference, different views between uh, this and this but we wouldn't say that it's necessarily because it's higher quality. So I think yeah. maybe it's, you know, the demand is higher, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily better. Yeah. So I mean, it might might be nice to have more demand controls, but unfortunately the auction market is very secretive. Sometimes you don't even know who, those, who the buyers are, so you can't really, you know, it's apart from those fixed effects, it's very hard to, to get further variables to pin that down, yeah. Yes, please. Uh, I'm curious, there was a, a point made in front, but I'm curious how you would respond to it about the, have you looked at column inches as the value variable, does that match up to price as well? If we were to replace quality here... Like column inches for one artist based on their peers at the period in the city instead of price. Since you already use column inches as, a, as an indicator of quality. Yeah, so uh, if I get your question correctly, that would be column four, right? So using quality, uh, column inches as a replacement or as a substitute for prices to say something about the quality of peers in, in the location we're looking at. Right, and that matches up well? Or yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's mostly consistent, yeah. But we can see that price seems to be, well, we get more significant periods out of it. So I'd kind of tend to use price also because we know it's sort of varying year by year, which is obviously better reflection of the quality you get in that particular year that your colleague is there. Is it simply a matter that you have more variation by price than by column inches. Because an artist produced three paintings in a year, the three paintings could have varied, varied price, whereas the same artist in that year, you know, you just have you know, that number of column inches, right? So that mm -hmm. is an artifact of the variable. How much vari 
variance you have. Yeah, so there's definitely more variance in the price. Yeah, so I mean, this is the this is the sum of all column inches, or the average, sorry, of all column inches in a location in a given year for everybody but yourself. So I mean, that that is um, bound to have less variation than the price. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, there was a gentleman in the very back who's raising his hand now for a long time. Tell me about the time span because your the period that you cover is. Right up until the collapse of the Dublin housing market. And the reason I ask is that if you want to map uh, the prices of Louis Brocky paintings and Paul Hennon paintings, you can map them over that time period uh, in exact correlation with uh, the Dublin housing market. And the Dublin housing market collapsed, those artists' values, I think, collapsed. And for example, the Japanese buying of European modern art, well, during the period of the flatlining of the Japanese economy over recent years, means that artists from the Rouen area, and Gidonet, and that sort of like Monet sort of work, their prices have changed relative to, to other artists that are deemed more valuable by know, European and North American markets. So I just wonder, um, when you showed that picture of tanks driving through the street, that really ruined the house prices uh, in, the, in the Boulevard Houseman. As you read Proust, you know that uh, house prices went down when the Germans arrived. Um, and I'm just wondering if you stopped in 2007, you get one picture. Um, but if you've included a different picture, you'd get a very different market in terms of Japanese influence. Uh, just afterwards, you get a very different picture in terms of who's buying? Yeah, so um, for some of those painters, I've already extended the data set up to 2010, but I don't have it for all the artists. So if I just use that sample, um, which is, you know, I kind of start from the very beginning, so it's obvious it's kind of biased toward old masters rather than the young innovators. But if I use that, the results are still the same. But I'm kind of, I don't want to show the entire sample, uh, the, the, the results based on that because it's not, it's not kind of, it's sort of biased because of the way I collect data. But I agree we might get a different uh, picture. And I think that has to do, I mean, if you include, say, um, GDP to sort of control for boom-bust cycles and business cycles and all of that, because we do have this strand of literature that tells us that, you know, tangible assets are just more uh, desirable during times of, of crisis like we have now. So it might be that this has something to do. So I've thrown GDP in there as an um, indicator to try to kind of capture that on top of what I have here. And the results are still robust. So, But I agree, something could be going on, yeah, from the market. You also have auction year fixes there. Yeah, exactly. So you, don't for that. you don't have auction place. Uh, well, I do have auction place, yeah. So if I throw that in, and also a, a dummy for Sotheby's and Christie's, who are obviously the biggest players in the market, the results still hold. So, But, I mean, in fairness, I think 90% of all paintings are auctioned in either London, New York, or Paris, so it's not much variation. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, do you have any repeat measures on the same piece? Um, I do have resales. Um, yeah. Uh, how does that vary over time? Um, well, for, for this at the moment, I only have kind of spot evidence. So resale values, they're obviously varying a lot kind of by what is trendy and what is fashionable and, and all of that. But in a hedonic setting, we usually say that resales don't really matter because we have the characteristics and that's what's driving the price. So, um, yeah, it's usually sort of ignored that... The, the value of a certain piece of art might vary over time. And certainly in a regression setting like this, where we have all the prices uh, kind of pooled together in a big panel, it shouldn't really come into effect that strongly, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. Too many questions. <laughs> yeah, I thought that when you look at measure price, 
because it's a kind of a timeline. So did you uh, did you consider the uh, the kind of thing about the inflation when you uh, measure the price of the artworks? Yeah, so this is all CPI-adjusted data. So this is the log of price by, adjusted by U.S. dollars. So it's all dollar values. So there shouldn't be any exchange rate factors or inflation factors coming in. So there's a kind of a, a, kind of a common standard for all these kind of artworks along the, along the century. You mean to be traded in, in dollars? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of them. I mean... A good share of them is auctioned off in pounds, and it's, I mean, that is converted then into val dollar values, yeah, so, but most of it is traded in dollars. Yeah? I was wondering if you considered to measure commons also at other years, because as was discussed just right now, like for price, you've got variation as commons is just one measure. Mm -hmm. And if you took, say, Colmenches not just in 2007, but say 10 years ago and then 20 years ago, you get maybe some idea of how time, I mean, Picasso is always valued, and when, for some painter in 2007 there was a particular fashion, or, well, I mean, not around late, late 2000s, there was uh, more value, so you get more space in the dictionary, because you yourself mentioned that probably that might have changed over time. Yeah, so on that. Price. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a very valid point. Unfortunately, I didn't do any work on that, but I'm totally relying on Gallinson, who has done a lot of work on that, and he has correlation um, matrices for column inches versus price, and I think we can kind of see from here that this sort of goes together. And then he has column inches across time, so they seem to be going in the same direction. They have the same tendency. They're strongly correlated. I mean. You really want them, though, to be sort of independent of the art markets, right? Because these are art experts. These are art historians who look at those paintings and sort of assess the quality of them. So it would be quite sad if they were totally focused on the market. So I agree that is probably going on, and they probably do use art markets to um, make judgments. But, I mean, if there's really some sort of extra expertise required that goes beyond what you get in the market, then it shouldn't be too kind of blurred or get, I guess, or too biased from that. And then he also has something which I don't have here is um, a correlation between all these measures and paintings uh, hung in a museum, which I think is also important because that's sort of the, the story, the part of the story that we don't have in here. Yeah, so all these measures seem to be fairly consistent. All right, yeah? Um, you already mentioned yourself that some of these paintings are in museums, so, and then often they're not sold at all. Draw millions of audiences a year, right? mm. so the value can be very high. And then there's a part that is sold on the private markets. Do you have any idea what kind of share that is? And potentially you could be missing. Um, you could, but I think most of most artworks produced by that particular sample of artists goes to the mainstream auction market. So the secondary market is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think it's not the majority of artworks. Right. And so I thought one way of, at least for the older cohort of artists around here, you, you could maybe um, restrict it to the 19th century and have earlier auction data, so you don't have the the Japanese bubble, which is, you know really made a difference, and, and the later the 
the Russians or the ex-Soviets mm -hmm. the Americans spend the money and they really in the twenties. Yeah, so I mean you probably have similar things going on in the fifties and sixties in other groups, but yeah. not as extreme. And at least for that group you could have for the early group yeah, so, I mean, that's simply due to lack of data. There is no contemporaneous data of art markets, or very little, very limited. And even then, you sort of have other disadvantages that come with that, because you're kind of measuring at the time the paintings are being produced, whereas this has the advantages of sort of backward looking at the entire oeuvre an artist has, or the entire portfolio an artist has produced over its lifetime. So it's sort of more likely that the market is right, placing the right value on a piece of art. Well, you restrict it to just... Uh you know this part of the sample, but just moving back in time a little bit, then you can go to a yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, you could, but there's very scarce data on earlier auctions, yeah. Maybe one more question, and then let me show you the results on my natural experiment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, please. Ah, uh, yeah? Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Just thinking as a parallel, in, in the Franco-Prussian War, a large number of Parisian artists, including Monet, um, moved west, and in London, Dieppe, Rouen, and supposedly that was when uh, Monet discovered Impressionism by the copyings and turn paintings that he saw. But anyway, there was a parallel claim made that you could look perhaps at the London in 1870 relative to Paris, but I see that you've kind of merged that whole period up from 1871 to 1913. But there is a similar supposed sort of historical e evacuation, uh, which has supposedly had a massive impact on the development of modern art around the Franco-Prussian War, which is what Proust refers to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I will maybe have a look at that. That's an interesting point. Thank you. That, I might try that and just split up and see what happens around that period, kind of as another second set of natural experiment. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. So, wrap up. We have paintings made in Paris and New York that are more valuable. So I kind of would call that a, a cluster premium. Um, and then it seems that we have, you know, premiums, location premiums, coinciding with innovations in the modern arts. Um, this is the same for Paris and New York. Now, peer quality has a positive impact on artworks, values, um, and the timing of that peer premium is consistent with the, just the sheer location premium. And New York has a consistently higher effect than Paris. So one might argue that New York might just be a more important cluster than Paris. Um, yeah. So... There seems to be evidence for an important role of peer quality in both those locations, but you know we might have selection. Artists might just choose to go to Paris and New York because they know they're more likely to make it there. And that has a lot to do not only with peers, but the other side of the story would be representation, art markets. Will you be likely to be seen by the market? Uh, and this is how you can make it as an artist. So there is you know, selection or sorting of artists into those locations. Uh, and then we have a lot of unobservable factors which... Um, you know, IV just sort of takes better care of that than an OLS setting. So it might be preferable to really look into an IV set, uh, setting at least to confirm that those findings are actually real. They're not biased. Um, now, we need a research design that is exogenous, obviously, an exogenous shock to the peer group, the peer composition. Now, I want to use the Second World War, propose the Second World War as a natural experiment. Um, and the nice thing is that the quality of levers is fairly heterogeneous, which is nice because you don't want just the 
the creme de la creme to leave Paris um, for your identification. So that is, that is nice, but average quality still decreases during those periods. So that, is, that, is, um, that seems to work out well. Um, and then I, I, use, I call my key instrument WW2 and choose quality drain, so World War II quality drain. Um, and this is zero until 1938, which is my cutoff point. And then the quality drain is the average peer quality in the years 1937, 1938, minus, oh, so for the entire sample, minus the average peer quality, oh, maybe I should use this one, yeah, minus the average peer quality uh, of the stayer sample. So this obviously has the advantage that we don't need to go into this whole debate about how has the Second World War affected quality of paintings, you know, materials with scars, you know, you might have other troubles than, you know, being able to continue your career. Uh, and we can avoid all of that by using just that period before to estimate the quality of the peers. Um, so then this is always positive after 1938. And this idea is all from Waldinger. Remember, he was the one uh, working on physicists in Nazi Germany. Um, so this is essentially his, his idea, and I'm, I'm, I'm using it because I think it is, uh, it's a pretty good way to get around that bias that you get by using uh, contemporaneous quality to assess the quality of peers. Oh dear, there we are. Now, this is just a snapshot of what we saw earlier, just to show you that the number of artists working in Paris actually does decrease quite significantly, just around 1938, the, so the beginning of the Second World War, and, you know, we're down from, well, 52 to 31, I guess, 32, just after the Second World War. So there is a big bra uh, brain drain on artistic uh, work in Paris. Um, now, first, uh, I have a reduced form uh, just to show you the, the effect of the quality drain variable. Um, and we kind of expect a negative coefficient here if levers really have had a positive impact on their peer group. So this is what I call stayers. So stayers are those that stay in Paris during those years, and levers are those that go away. So the difference is the, the quality drain. Um, so this is the setup. And again, everything else stays exactly the same. So we have the same control variables as before. Uh, there we are. So this is the reduced form. I have the lock of price on the left-hand side. And this is just really to show you that this does have a significant effect. And it's negative. Um, decent size. So that seems to be working okay as a predictor for quality. Now, in the second stage, we're, you know, replacing that, we're instrumenting peer quality with a WW2 induced quality drain. I'm just going to show you the second stage now here. So on the left-hand side, just to remind you, it's the same one with OLS, estimated with OLS. And right-hand side is the same thing using that IV, that uh, exogenous shock. So this is all for the period of, um, you know, the Second World War, so 28 to 45. So you need a bit of a, a period before that to have a decent interval over which to measure the quality before the onset of the natural experiment. Um, yeah, so we see we have a positive, significant effect. Um, and it's quite considerable in size. Um, so it seems to be in line or it seems to confirm the OLS findings. Now, 
we know that a lot of these artists have chosen to go to New York as a safe haven. So this would just be the other side of the coin to sort of look at that part of the story and see, all right, now all these people have left Paris. Now, what good did it do that they went to New York? Were they able to add anything there to the art scene? Um, so again, the quality of arrivals is heterogeneous, which is nice. Uh, and I calculate the induced quality gain for New York. So I, I use the same strategy just to focus on the years prior to the Second World War to estimate the quality. Uh, again, the reduced form. So already here, we see that the quality gain is not really significant, which seems to indicate that the quality of peers, um, or the, the shock to quality of peers, uh, due to the arrival of modern artists in New York, uh, did not play a role um, for those that have already been in New York. Uh, and here, this is really where we have the major difference. So OLS would make us believe that this effect is significant in New York. But once we go to the IV setting here, we see that this effect is not really there. So that, that must be biased somehow. Um, and I have a reason for that as well, which kind of goes back to what I've done, some previous work that I've done, where I've looked at um, the composition of peers. And it seems that New York just uh, really functions through uh, indigenous production. So people that have started their careers in New York and they've been there their entire life. People like Warhol, for instance. Uh, he's worked in, in New York all his life. He's, no, he's never really uh, left it, I think. He wasn't a big traveler either. So um, it seems that New York is really made by these indigenous uh, artists working there. So that will be my explanation. Um, and another point of view that an art historian has sort of alluded me to, and it's also um, in that book by Wheeler, that quote that I showed you earlier, is that many of these artists are sort of falling stars, if you will. They have been established major stars in the continent, in Paris, um, but they're sort of past their prime if you will. So they kind of go to New York and it, what we're catching up here might be some sort of retirement effect. I mean, it's nice to have them around, but you know, they don't really help you to advance or to innovate further in those new artistic streams just because they are doing something entirely different. So this will be the two sort of explanations that I can offer you at this stage. Um, yeah, so in my robustness tests, um, I'm trying to pivot that whole thing a bit more towards that idea of innovation. So let me just maybe quickly say a couple of words on that. So in order to see a little bit more of what, why it is that this is not significant for New York, but it is for Paris, what I have done is to interact the effects, or to, to kind of estimate the effects separately for different streams of arts, which is sort of you know, the, the um, equivalent of saying, okay, not all economists are the same, not all finance researchers are the same, not all sociologists are the same, and neither are all artists the same. It really matters, do you have another ex abstract expressionist, another surrealist in your vicinity? Um, and that seems to be consistent. Unfortunately, I cannot show you the results yet because I haven't got neat tables <laughs> yet. But it's consistent, um, and I would like to add it to the final version of the paper because it makes perfect sense that there is specialization going on and peer quality is different across specializations. Um, and the other thing is that whole idea that you have, uh, that it matters at which point in your career you choose to go to these clusters. So one way to do that is to have uh, kind of a mincer curve for each artist and see is the artist just before their prime or way past their prime. So you could calculate, well, if you have a mincer curve kind of like that, an upward sloping profile like that, you could just kind of 
uh, calculate the maximum of the curve using the polynomial in ages. Uh, and just estimate the peak and say, is this person prior to the peak or post-peak? Um, so this is one thing that I've done so far. Um, in terms of estimation, it's not maybe the neatest way, but so far the only way I can think of how to do that. So I'd be very happy if you guys have any suggestions on how to get around that. But it seems that really for New York, we have mostly people that are way past their prime, so way past their peak age, if you will. Um, now, so, sorry, that was a little detour on, on kind of what I've been doing the last three days, but it's not in the presentation. So robustness tests, I mean... It is uh, obviously plays a big role when exactly you pick the cutoff points for around that natural experiment of the Second World War. So rather than just using 37 and 38 uh, as the cutoff point and using this as the base to calculate the quality uh, of the peers, this, my argument would sort of be, yeah, this is the most recent quality before the onset of the Second World War. But Waldinger, for instance, he measures um, quality over a much longer time span before, I think he starts in... Um, 25 to 33, so five years, because he says, yeah, I mean, it might just be that you're very unlucky and you hit a very, you know, good year or a very bad year if you just focus on that one year prior, the experiment. So I did that, so I kind of increased the, the period over which I um, capture quality, and that is still consistent. Although, I don't know, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think it's it might be more accurate to just use that one year before because that, that is really what, what matters to the peers. Um, and I guess you could confirm that using a lag, in fact, um, which I think I, sh I should maybe try. Now, the other thing is, um, I just have Paris as a K uh, well, it's Paris is just the one soft kind of observation, if you will, kind of across time. So it's still a panel because we have a bunch of artists in Paris. But it might, nice, might be nice to confirm that we have a similar effect in other locations as well. So unfortunately, the next biggest city would be London, where we cannot apply that whole setting. But Berlin has about 1,500 observations over the entire sample period. So a good share of that, I think about four or 500, is around the Second World War. So I have applied the whole thing to Berlin too. And that works out well, too. So you get the same kind of direction uh, of peer effect. So the loss of peers also matches in Berlin the same way it does in Paris. Uh, but it's a very small sample. So I don't know. I mean, the next biggest cities then would be Brussels and Rome, but they all have very little observation. So I kind of like to look at the two big cities, but just to confirm that this effect is also observable in other cities. And then now, this is kind of to capture some of the general concerns of this setup. I also included a whole bunch of other controls. Uh, GDP is also one of them, uh, and the streams that an artist belongs to. So, you know, dot, dot, dot. So this is kind of the stage of, of what I'm doing now. So I'm still conducting a couple of robustness checks um, on that work. Right. So this is, this is really it. Um, Artists in two clusters benefit from peers. Um, it's all happening through the quality channel, not through the number of peers that you have in your vicinity at your disposal. Uh, benefit mostly coincides with periods of major artistic innovations, which is sort of what we expect, because if you have a young innovator at your disposal, this might be very good. You kind of jump on the same boat and kind of follow the trend. Um, now, we have uh, confirmed 
This effect, as soon as we move to an IV setting using the Second World War as an external shock on the peer composition in those locations, which is reassuring. Um, and I'd like to think that this is a fairly okay identification in terms of an instrument. Um, now, if we believe that those estimates are actually true, we'd have an artistic brain drain um, that has a significant effect on the stayers. So the stayers are uh, worse off having lost their peers um, and the quality suffers, the quality of artwork suffers. But this brain drain does not translate into a brain gain for New York. Thank you very much. Let there be light. Very good. Oh, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good point. So if the reputation doesn't travel with the person, reputation or just I mean, uh, <laughs> he just doesn't know enough people. You know, he doesn't know a place yeah. like a big hall where they all can meet and you know, discuss. And yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess for the biggest stars, you're sort of in safe territory because it's known that those are the big stars, like Breton, for instance, everybody knows. I mean, he's the surrealist pope for a reason, you know. So certainly people noticed when he arrived in New York that he's a big, big shot. Uh, but for other people who are kind of further down the ladder in terms of column inches, I agree, it might, it might have been very hard. And I think there is anecdotal evidence of artists who had, you know, a decent sort of fan base in Europe, but they never really made it in, in the U.S., um, it was two things. It was first, like actually just building on that. Because one of the things which happened in Paris certainly was that there were networks which didn't actually overlap. It seemed like they should have done, and people would certainly have seen galleries and things. But there's a lot of biographical networks which were done mm. showing who didn't, didn't have contact and who was outside of some of those loops. And I was wondering if you'd seen anything done by the Museum of Modern Art when they massively overhauled the way they presented all of their modern artists. Because one of the things which they started to do was look at the peer effects and present some of that in how they connected the paintings in the way they were exhibited. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Museum of Modern Art in New York. So when they overhauled their modernist galleries, so when they redesigned the way they were being presented, the galleries from, I think, I could be wrong on dates, about 1830 um, until 1960. Mm -hmm. you have to me on that. Certainly the European ones, um, they actually separated those out and then started to present them, looking at who knew whom and how that had changed and putting their biographies into that, which I thought might be an interesting thing to try and control for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks. That's a good point. Yeah. So far, I only tried looking at have artists been participating in the Salon in Paris, because that seems to be sort of a, a 
tough crowd who's kind of there and there has been a bit of an overhaul, you know, people revolting or rebelling against the fact that only certain people could get in there. So this is the, yeah, it's kind of in a similar vein. But yeah, thanks, that's, that's a very good idea. Oh yeah, I agree. I don't have data, but I certainly like to think that you know artists benefit from composers the same way that economists benefit from sociologists. So yeah. Always <laughs> good to flatter the audience. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Is there a diminishing marginal returns for the sort of critical? I mean, once you've got certain critical mass, maybe that's why six people come to New York doesn't make that much difference. Um, I mean, in terms of size, I mean it's yeah. Yeah, it could be. Uh, it's just too, too little. We, we have too little observations. Or New to York see. is too big. New York is too big, such a big critical mass that a few yeah. people doesn't come into it. Whereas, let's say if they'd all come to Oxford, then presumably maybe that would have had a dramatic effect. Yeah, it could New York be a big place, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that could be. Oh, that's a good point. Or maybe you can just say that disruption of a peer network is much easier than the establishment of one. Mm -hmm. So when. Artists left Paris, it really damaged the Parisian art world. But these refugees who arrived in New York, you know, don't function as well as they did in Paris. So it's asymmetrical in, in, in a way which explains your results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, your, before your uh, World War II uh, instrument, uh, you know, the OLS is the other way, where you see stronger uh, New York. Uh, PE effect, which puzzled me a little bit. That's... I was just going to say, I think the New School has some stuff around that is in looking at um, refugees in, I know certainly they looked at novelists and poets, but I think they also did some work around artists as well, but I don't know if that overlap with your superstars. And they had um, a research forum a couple of years ago looking at essentially what happened to them once they made it to New York, uh, what networks did they hook into and what did it do for their careers. And so it was again mm. more of a biographical Mm -hmm. expectation, but some of the things which came out of that was that the styles were just too radically different, it didn't quite translate, but also that the personal consequences of being too hard, it didn't Oh yeah, thanks, that's a good reference, yeah I need to beef it up a little bit in terms of anecdotal evidence but there's a lot to read so. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I can ask you, do you have like a rough idea of how many of the artists were in touch with you know, uh, for example, in Paris, we're in touch with other artists in New York because it is quite possible that you know they've exchanged letters or they're just interested in, in what is happening. And some, mm -hmm. You know, like Picasso, for example, is very in, in, in a sense of very long. Yeah, yeah, I don't have any data on this, but a colleague in uh, Istanbul, she's working on auctions of letters or communiques between different artists. So hopefully eventually when she's there, I can kind of uh, ask her what the general ten tendencies are. The letters would be published. They're published, I mean, alongside the art book. So you pretty much know who communicated with who. 
you know, with going like in a sense, like mm -hmm. already in a circle with other artists, always mm. nice. Yeah. Yeah, so this would sort of be the equivalent of are you my co-author or just a random sort of peer. Yeah, so it would be nice to get a better grip on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe just one last very short question from Matthew and then we have to work forever. Just given, as you've observed, that New York is the world's largest art market, works produced by artists who lived in New York will obviously command a premium. I'm thinking during 1941, by a bizarre piece of the Stalin-Hitler Pact, uh, 10,000 Jews they were able to actually migrate across Russia to Japan, where they sat out the war by some bizarre sort of characteristic of Japan not actually taking out the same forces as the Nazis. But anyway, if any of those had been artists, I would expect there to be a premium on their work in, in the Japanese art market. And I'm wondering, if you took out New York and Paris art markets and just looked at London, would you see the same effects in terms of the value of New York-based artists relative to Paris-based artists? Um... I haven't tried that yet. So just in terms of where the works have been sold. Well, if someone's lived in New York, chances are their works could be more, more valuable in New York. And if New York is the largest world's art market, mm -hmm. that premium, as you explained, when things do appears, it's just got to do with the fact that the person buying it thinks all their local. I think we really need to go and see people standing right outside the door. But before we defer, let me just make a couple of announcements. On Wednesday, uh, we have a seminar back in a few on social media. Uh, no. So it's a mis mystery yeah. speaker, uh, all the more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> On next Monday, at uh, the same time, Claire Fireball, who is from uh, Penn State, uh, former editor of the ASR, uh, will be here talking about the inequality of lifespan between countries. So um, that should be really good. So, but before we go, let's just thank Christiane again. <laughs>